All right, good morning, Grace Church. Ha- happy Labor Day weekend, everyone. Um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be able to bring God's Word um, to, to this morning, and it's, it's very humbling to be able to use this fine um, piece of workmanship. If you missed last week, or just as a reminder, one of Pastor Matthew's friends, Grant Kaihai, crafted this and explained about the design. And after the service, several of us just like made a beeline up here to look at it. And just and if you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do that. We you know, walked around and looked at it. And as I was recounting that at our elder meeting last Monday morning at 6 o'clock, <laughs> do, does it ever take a little bit of time for your mind to kind of warm up? And I was, I was explaining this to Pastor Matthew, and I was like, I really love, and I couldn't think of the word, and I was like, that podium, and, and Pastor Matthew holding his Bible with his arms crossed, looked through those like scholarly glasses and said, it's a pulpit, Jonathan, it's a pulpit, so <laughs> it is a pulpit, and it's, it's beautiful, and it's a privilege to, to uh, be able to share from it this morning. Um, what do you think God thinks of this pulpit? It's a rhetorical question, and we'll come back to it later. But what do you think God thinks about this pulpit? So hold that one in the back of your mind. The title is Invest Your Talents. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. Uh, Pastor Jim used a different version, but it's the same, same scripture, same principle. And this is from Matthew 25, and um, this passage is always just jumped out to me. It's very sobering. It's, it's really, to me, it's kind of scary. And over, over the years, I've, I've pondered, why is that? Why does this passage just jumps out at me and kind of, kind of shocks me? And, um, and after, after a while, I, I came to the conclusion, it's because the, in, in the scripture, the punishment is about sins of omission, now, there are sins of commission, you know, things that are, are direct commands that things we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. But then there's things of omission, things that we should do, but maybe we're not doing. And when you think of the other one, if you're like, you know, oh, I could check that box. I do this and I do that and I do this right. Okay, I didn't murder anybody. Uh, okay, I'm a pretty good person. Anybody think that? That that's kind of easy, and people threw that at at Jesus. But sins of omission are so are sobering, because without a heart for the Lord and a focus on Him, it could be a real blind spot for us. And this is articulated in a quote I've I've I found, and I sorry I don't know the exact uh, reference uh, who quoted it, but it says. Sins of omission can be subtle and sneaky. We may not even realize that we have failed to do what God commands. While I might not ever commit adultery, for example, I could easily fail to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Is that hitting home a little bit? In this example, committing adultery would be a sin of commission, while failing to love would be a sin of omission. When we consider and examine our sins of omission, we should be humbled and flee any attempt 
to boast in self-righteousness. And then this is from um, a website called Living True. A sin of omission is a sin that takes place because of not doing something that is right. Examples could include not praying, not standing up for what is right, or not sharing Christ with others. And it references James 4.17. It says, so, whatever, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So that's the kind of the context. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a heavy, um, well, it is a heavy-weighted scripture. But uh, it's, God's going to give us grace, though, at the end. Because he's giving this to us as a warning, right? He's giving this to us not to get us, but he's giving this scripture to us to warn us to prepare us so that we can alter our course if we need to alter our course. So you guys with me on that? We've got our, we're girded up. Okay, it's a hard-hitting word of God. So if we could, if we could I'd like to pray uh, that, that God would bless the reading of his word this morning. God, thank you for warning us. Sometimes it's so hard to hear because it just strikes to our heart. Even preparing for the message, Lord. It, it's just so clear and abundant, my sin, and, and yet you give us grace, and you give us hope to get through it. And I pray that as we, as we hear your words, we would receive it not, not as manipulation, not as um, being defeated, but a, a new start, a new opening, a new beginning to the way you would guide us and direct us, Lord. And I ask that we'd receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to put the description, just a little bit of context. Um, it's from the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew starts with genealogy and the birth of Christ. There's a little bit on, the, on Jesus' early life, his baptism, temptation, this is 40 days of temptation. Then the beginning of his ministry and the calling of disciples. Then he begins preaching and healing. Then there's a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then there's a series of warnings. Okay, there's several scriptures that are linked together. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible where the words of Christ are in red ink, then you'll see several pages that are almost completely red. I mean, it's just Jesus just teaching, teaching, teaching. Matthew's recording it. Uh, very little narration in there. And then, so after this passage, it, it's the, what precedes it are, are the, is the parable of the virgins, and then what, what comes after it is the sheep and the goats, if you're familiar with the sheep and the goats. If you're not familiar with it, it's a really good read afterwards. And then that's right before the religious leaders plot and follow through with the execution of Jesus. So, so he's hitting them hard, and they're, 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 they don't want to hear it. They've had enough. So let's go through the, the passage of this. So chapter 25, verses 14, and again, this is the, the New King James. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants, delivered his goods to them. So kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, that's used interchangeably in the New Testament. Um, Matthew uses almost exclusively kingdom of heaven, but kingdom of God, uh, but it's the same thing. Jesus talked, spoke more about heaven and hell than 
than anyone else in, in the Bible. Spoke a lot about it, actually. And the, the Lord, the Master, distributed his goods. And notice, in, in, in Jim's version, it was bags of silver, and in, in this version, it's talents. But notice, he did not give explicit instructions on what to do with, with the talents. He didn't say, go do this. He just distributed them. The expectation, though, was understood. Right, imagine, I was thinking of a, trying to think of an analogy of this. If, if we worked in like a medical billing um, facility, and, and the company we worked for invested in a lot of new software, right, to, to make the process more streamlined and more effective, and, and then one of us just chose to not use that software and just like to hand, hand do all the medical records, and the company spent $100,000 on the software. Could you imagine our, our bosses might be a little upset about that, right? It's, it's implied, like, we weren't told that it, just go use the software. It's, it's, it's there. So he's the master, and he gives them the talents. How did he know how much to distribute and to whom? Now, why would he give one five, one two, and one of the servants one? What factors was, was, were these decisions based upon? And do you think he had apprehensions about giving the one talent to the last servant? I mean, there's a reason, right? There's a reason he gave five to that person. There were things, there, there were patterns in that, in that man's life that gave him the confidence to give him the most money. And there, was, there were reservations with the other one, but yet he still gave him the talent. And then he goes on a journey. So imagine his bags are packed, right? It's going to be obvious because even if he's rich and he's going on a journey, he's probably going to have some kind of caravan. He's going to have uh, maybe his donkey's packed or wagon. It's clear that he's going to be gone a while. So you could really think about two different things here. You could think, oh, he's going to be gone a while. I can get started right away and start investing and start making the most of this opportunity. Or you could think, I've got time. You know, I'll get to it later. Notice the two different mindsets. First point, if you're, if you're taking notes today, is we have each been given our own unique talents according to God's sovereignty. So, do you think that's fair? I mean, some, some people might think, well, why did he get five talents and I only got two? Or why did they get, how come they can sing and I, I can't? speaking for anybody but me. Um, <laughs> why, do they have, why do they have that much money? How come they have a family that's stable and my family's in pieces? You know, why is, why is this kid popular and I'm not? I mean, we can go on and on about that. But God's given it as he sees fit. Could we all have the same talents, like, across the board? I mean, what kind of world would that, would that be? If we all did exactly the same thing, exactly the same way. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 20 through 26. I'm getting my bookmark in the right. Way. 
But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But should there, but, but God composed the body having given greater honor to the part that lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So there's different parts. And that's God's sovereignty. That's the way he designed it. Now, the world doesn't really look at it that way, does it? It doesn't look like, oh, you, you've got this little, little side part over here. The world venerates success, no matter the field, no matter the medium, regardless of what's left in the wake. And we all kind of get sucked into it, right? We, we, we tend to admire people, let's say a, uh, let's say a musician. Maybe their, maybe their entire body of work is singing about things that are not in glory to God. And yet we, we, we kind of admire their success, right? They were famous. They were talented. So we get sucked into it. But what if we develop our talents but don't use them for good, for God? So think of, and I'm going to use a couple of examples that Charles Spurgeon, he was a 19th century pastor in England. And he spoke of Napoleon. Napoleon's someone like that. We... We venerate his success, right? He conquered so much. But what about the thousands, even the tens of thousands, of fatherless children and widows and destruction left in his wake? When you think about it that way, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, he was very talented. What about what is earthly success to God? Isaiah said, Our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? So is the preacher of a small, struggling church trying to hold the congregation together any more or less significant than the one in the megachurch? How does God view them? Are they being faithful? Charles Spurgeon asked that question, and then he offered an analogy because you might think of, well, these, this person has so many talents, and I have this many talents. He gave the example of, of rent. If, you have, if you're renting a really, really nice house or you're renting, just say, a one-bedroom apartment, we still have to pay rent, right? We still have to give an account. No one's off the hook here. If you don't pay the rent, what happens? You're out, right? You don't have a place to live. And so in this analogy, he's saying, whatever we're given, we are accountable for that. Then we go to verse 8, 16 through 18, and you notice the first two servants doubled their talents. They took the money, and they went and made more money for it. And so a real easy example of, of this, so we used to, um, back in college and a little bit after, we used to go to southern Mexico. We were, we'd explore these caves, and 
friend of mine, um, Jonathan Smith, was a missionary kid down there and actually discovered these caves way up in the mountains. The locals knew about these caves, but no one wanted to go near them because the, they were vertical caves. They just went straight down, and the, um, when the wind would go over it, it would make this sound, and it sound, they, thought, they thought like the devil lived down there. It was scary. But Jonathan was an explorer, and he went and explored it, so we would go and explore these caves. And when we did, we had to ascend a 1,000-foot mountain with all kinds of gear, like thousands of feet of rope and water and food and gear and carabiners. And to do that, we had um, help from people in the village below. And one of the, the village leaders, his name was Don Francisco, he would use his donkeys and load them up. I mean, piled up with donkeys. We would pay him for, and, and his crew for the services. And then he took that money and he bought a grinder so he could grind corn and the, and the town could grind corn. And so now they have an electric grinder to grind the grain. Now the, the people in the village could spend less time hand grinding grain and more time planting and expanding their crops. And so they grew prosperity. It went from a town with not even uh, a paved road into a town with a, with a paved road and it grew. He invested the money he earned. And that's just a simple example of that. The third, the third servant buried his talents. And I find this really remarkable that he buried them. I assume he saw the other two receive their talents. And so I, I was asking myself, was he jealous? Why did, why did he bury them? I know what he said. Was he angry? Maybe spiteful? Fine, I only get one talent. I'll just throw it in the ground and move on. Did he think it was beneath him? Do we look at other people and think, well, they have all this, and I only have this, so I don't really... I don't want to use this because I'm not very good at it. Well, I mean, why didn't he just put it in a sock drawer? I mean, not that I put many in my sock drawer. But, but there was a purpose behind it, right? He, he was dismissive. Was he dismissive because he only received one talent and didn't take it seriously? Did he plan to go back before his master returned and dig it up and do something with it? How about you? Do you see the talent of others and hold back from using yours as you view it to be inferior? Does it seem like someone else has got this? I don't need to get involved. It's taken care of. And then we fail to contribute. Do you have talents that you plan to use one day, but those days are ticking away day after day? It's on the back burner. I'm going to get to it. I hope you're thinking of, of something now, even one talent that you have. So the point number two, having the talents is not enough. We must develop, exercise, and employ them. And I want to give you two examples. The first is from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is David, he's getting ready to fight Goliath, right? And they're, they're getting ready to gear him up. And, and so it's, it's 1 Samuel Chapter 17, verses 33 through 37. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. 
And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of, out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from, the, from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he would deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. He didn't just stumble up into this battle. You know, it wasn't just dumb luck. He didn't just grab some stones and, Okay, God, bring me in. He prepared. He had done the work. He had faced battles. Before that, David had been tending sheep, which menial work, right? Dirty, thankless work. How is that preparing him to lead God's people? Do you ever feel like you're doing just tedious, repetitive, hard, thankless work? Moms? Dishes, getting dinner, getting breakfast ready, dinner ready, repeat, driving around. But is it menial? Is it insignificant? David's father did not even, even didn't introduce him to Samuel as a possible heir to kingship. But David did not stumble into success. While he was tending sheep, he was praying, he was writing, he was singing, he was worshiping, he was fighting. He was leading. He was preparing so that he would be ready to serve God and his people. And he had no audience. And here's a, here's a, here's a man with would fit in the five-talent category, right? But what if he didn't do the music? What if he didn't do the shepherding? What if he didn't do his full scope of the talents God afforded him? What would his leadership qualities have been like? What would he have been lacking? But he was faithful. The other example is from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It's one of my favorite ones in the Bible. I love this one. The two widow's mites. And just to back you up, the, uh, the scribes and, and Pharisees were wearing their long robes and, um, you know, they're thinking how great they were. And Jesus, there's people all around, and he looks up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, which, great, I mean, do that. But then he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now, a mite is like a fifth of a, of a cent. Anybody bend over and pick up a penny off the ground anymore? I mean, probably haven't done that in a while, unless you're a collector, and you can get the copper ones or whatever. So a mite, it's, really, it's a really small coin. Um, actually, my son John has one. We, got, we were able to get that at a dive shop in, um, in Oregon. It's really small. It's not, it's not glamorous, right? It's not that shiny gold that you would think of with a coin. Very unassuming. So Jesus Caesar put this into the treasure, and he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings to, for God, but she out of her poverty 
put in all the livelihood she has had. Does that give you the chills? Her commitment to God that she would give the last of what she has, that's how much she loved God. We don't know her name, and yet here we are 2,000 years later speaking about her. And to God, it wasn't about the gold coin or how much money, it was her heart. Okay, the last section of the passage, verses 19 through 30, is we must give an account. There's a day of reckoning. The Lord chooses when he's going to go and when he's going to return. The master describes the first two servants as good and faithful. The master increases the responsibility and privilege of the first two servants. They're given more. The master invites them to enter into the joy of the Lord. The third servant tried to put the master on defense. The third servant made excuses. I mean, can you imagine the expression of the master during this exchange? I mean, can you just see the steam rising? You've been on both sides of this, right? You've been the sheepish, sorry, delivering the news of, failure, right? It's not very comfortable. And then you've been the one receiving the bad news and the excuses. And so you probably know what it's like on both sides of the coin there. He says, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. <laughs> I know what kind of guy you are. And I was afraid. It's interesting he even confessed that. It's, you wonder why he didn't need to like skip town or something like that. Because obviously there's fear there. He doesn't want to deliver this message. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. And then he said what he ought, what, what he ought to have done, which, which was invested with the bankers. Why do you think he called him lazy and wicked? There's one, th there's one thing in the Bible that jumps out to me that reoccurs, and it's that really angers God. Well, there's something that really pleases God. There's many things, but one thing sticks out, really pleases and makes anger, and it's faith. And my family hears me. You've probably heard me quote this a lot. But the righteous shall live by faith. I mean, it takes faith to take that money, to take that talent, and invest it. You put risk out there. You could lose it. And he didn't, you know, he didn't squander the money. It's not like he went out gambling or he didn't go buy a new donkey or he probably could have bought a lot with a talent or a bag of silver. I think it's one of the things that always really struck me with this passage. It's not like he went back empty-handed. But the master didn't care. What have you done with it? What have you done with what I gave you? And so that, to me, that lack of faith of the investment, that laziness, dismissiveness of it is what angered the master. So he gave the talent to the first, the first servant, the one that already had the five plus the five. Do you think this is fair? There's a, this is actually, there's a principle in life. It's called the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. You ever heard the 80-20 rule? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 
20% of people own 80% of the land. 20% of the hazards at a workplace cause 80% of the accidents. It, it's, you can apply it so many, so many ways. Jesus is talking, it's a principle of life. It, it wasn't even unique to this master and this servant situation. So he takes it and he gives the one who, who made five more. I can trust you with this. I can commit this to you. It's just a fact of life. And then he instructed the unprofitable servant to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And however you want to read that, that's, that's sobering to me. Because there's, there will be an account. Now you might think to yourself, um, wow, is he talking about do I have to work for salvation? Do I have to go do works? No, not at all. Um, it's that God doesn't want us to get through life simply avoiding the hazards of sin. Simply avoiding the catastrophes. He wants us to strive. He wants us to work, he wants us to work for his kingdom. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to be brave. He wants us to speak up. He wants us to work. And so when we, when we bury that, we subdue what he can do through us for his kingdom. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 is full of it, right? The faith chapter. Everybody listed there is so full of flaws. And yet they're listed as the great uh, examples of who we should aspire to be after. One of my favorites is Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. But she had faith. She, she trusted that what the spies said to her was going to come to pass. She trusted God. And she's revered in Scripture. And she wasn't like, you know, there wasn't the cleanest occupation. Okay. So I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about works for salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, I think we might have that slide. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, back to the question. Is God impressed with this pulpit? It's a little bit of a trick. Don't answer out loud. It's kind of a trick question. You've got to think about it. Or is he, imp- I mean, could God make a pulpit probably even better? I mean, this is a great pulpit. Or is he impressed with the heart behind that crafted it and the faithfulness to do it? I went back and I watched Grant's um, presentation to our church. And I just want to pull out three quotes. The sacrifice he made on the cross is immensely beautiful. And he wanted to capture that somehow. The flawed piece of wood has been redeemed, where this wood has been split, has been redeemed with these spindles. What would be ugly has been made beautiful. And he built it that we might know what is true and stand firm in that and share it with the world here in Slida, Colorado. How has God gifted you? What will you do with it? today and the remainder of your days 
What if you've lost a talent? You know, maybe, maybe you, you're, you lost your voice, you can't sing anymore. Or maybe you're losing eyesight and you can't read the same way anymore. Or maybe you don't have a forum to use your talent. Can you still trust God that if you give to him what he's granted you, he can use it just like he used David in the field with nobody around? Who's your circle of influence? Your neighbors, coworkers, family, people at the coffee shop, your favorite restaurant, the gas station. So as we pray and we prepare for a communion, I want you to just think about one or two talents that maybe God's speaking to you about. I mean, I, I could think of one right offhand. And I could think of why I would fall into that, that third servant because there's a fear about that talent. But as we pray, I want you to ask God right now that he can make your offerings to him beautiful for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know there's not a single person here today that feels like they've used every one of their talents to their full ability that you've granted them. I know this because you spoke these words and they pierce our hearts. And the devil, Lord, would discourage us and condemn us and the devil would say it's too late. And our pride would say it's not enough. I don't even want to try. But we don't do it for man. We do it to serve the living God as an act of faith. Lord, my prayer is that for everyone here, you would kindle up in our hearts that one or two talents that you would use in us and through us for your glory. That today we would resolve that not another day would go by where we would not give back to you what you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.